five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. So this week we will talk about space domain awareness, or knowing what's going on around you in space, including things like space debris. This is a similar episode to the one with Kehan Space just a couple of weeks ago, so you may want to check that one out too. This week, my guest is Eric Ingram, CEO and founder of Scout. Scout deploys sensors in space that produce the data you need for space domain awareness. So let's hear all about that from Eric after a couple of short messages from our sponsors and partners, as usual. Also, as usual, a reminder to please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform so more people can find our podcast. Thank you. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Eric Ingram from Scout Space. Eric, welcome. Happy New Year. And what does Scout do? Hey, Happy New Year to you as well. Happy to be a part of this. Scout is developing vision software and systems to allow spacecraft to better understand what's going on around them um, in space and also working towards the next generation of space domain awareness utilizing on orbit or in space assets great so um you mentioned the term there space domain awareness so there's a few different terms being thrown around um so space domain awareness or sda for short um, there's also space situational awareness, SSA for short, and then there's space traffic management. So I think I know the answer for that, but for the, for the benefits to our listeners, is that all the same or is there like any sort of like slight nuances? There are nuances, but largely they're the same thing. So space domain awareness primarily refers to the governmental or defense side of knowledge of everything that's going on in space. Space situational awareness and space traffic management are slightly closer grouped together, and that's more on the civil and commercial side of operations. So that's knowing where things are in orbit, who's following the rules of the road, who's not, you know, avoiding conjunctions and potential collisions and making the commons of space be operated in responsibly. Okay, so space debris um, at large, a um, very interesting topic. And, you know, we, we had obviously a few weeks ago, our friends from Kehan Space as guests, and, you know, we'll come back to that. But let me ask you a very sort of slightly facetious question. How worried are, are you about space debris at this point in time on a scale, let's say from, uh, oh, it's a nuisance, I may destroy some expensive stuff to, oh my God, people are gonna die if we don't do anything. <laughs> Uh, I'd say I'm in the latter part of the middle of that uh, scale. It is certainly a problem, and we will at some point reach a tipping point. Humans are notoriously reactionary instead of proactive about things. 
And I don't foresee us as a collective getting out ahead of the problem before it becomes dire. There is a possibility for that to happen, but that will take the effort of all of us. I think space debris within the next five to 10 years left unchecked will begin to cause significant problems, significant disruption in operations and increase risk significantly for a lot of operators, particularly in low Earth orbit. So you mentioned the concept of a tipping point here, which sort of implies a nonlinear change. Is, is, is that what you meant? Is there some sort of event that you foresee? Is it something like the Kessler syndrome or is there something else you have in mind? No, uh, along the same lines, right? Even if the number of spacecraft increase linearly, the number of conjunctions increase at a much higher rate. I think the number of conjunctions in 2019 was something like 400,000. And that's across the entire Gaussian of risk profiles, right? Only a subset of those are the ones that actually cross the threshold of risks that people react to them. But if you increase the number of spacecraft in orbit by 40x, 30 or 40x over the next decade, uh, that means the number of conjunctions is going to go up at least several hundred x on top of that. And, you know, that's not including debris itself, but including the things that could become debris. Right. And so we are obviously, well, that's at least everybody's expectation, I think, increasing the number of objects we're putting into space significantly over the next few years. I mean, I think up until now, we've put something like slightly north of 10,000 objects into space. Um, that is complete sort of intact object since uh, Sputnik, right? Uh, of which a few thousand remain active and the rest is sort of like inactive and um, unfortunately even many times broken up. And there are of course plans um, for putting tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of objects into space. Could you just um, give us sort of a situational overview of where we are right now of like, how many of those objects are we tracking um, right now? And then how many of those objects can we hope to track going forward, including by the efforts of what you guys are doing? So I, I think the lower level, the lower limit of detectability for the ground-based observers utilizing radars, which I know you discussed in the last episode, is somewhere around 10 centimeters in diameter, of which objects larger than that, we are tracking the vast majority of them. Um, and it's really only an estimate of how many objects below that size are actually in orbit right now. And um, of those, you know, we are probably tracking an extremely small subset of them. Uh, by adding different sources of space domain awareness, uh, either through other means that are created for ground-based observations or utilizing optical on-orbit sensors, like what Scout is developing uh, and the software to go along with it, uh, what we're working towards is being able to detect things I'll caveat with in ideal lighting conditions down to about the one centimeter diameter. And the bigger picture that we're working towards is having continuous coverage of all of low Earth orbit, because that is an, an aspect that you can do from space that you can't do from the ground. If you are looking up at the things passing overhead, you really only have a view of that swath of sky. Uh, and it's really kind of a two-dimensional view. If you are looking from space to slightly lower space, uh, and you have multiple sensors in a chain, you know, a disaggregated sensor network in orbit above them, you can actually have, as I mentioned, continuous coverage. And so you can have continuous custody of these objects in orbit. And that is really where we get to the next generation 
of knowledge of what's going on in space and in orbit, and we get to the next generation of capabilities and information we get from that data. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit because I guess that's sort of you know, one of the, the key questions, what, what you guys are doing, how you're doing that sensing and what the data is that you actually get at the end of the day. So when you're detecting objects from space, first of all, what are you detecting? Are you detecting, I'm assuming it's not just detecting the presence of an object because that doesn't really do anything for you at the end of the day. I guess what you ideally want is you detect that as an object and you sort of identify the, um, as precise as possible, the astrodynamics, like the orbit, the orbital parameters of that object, right? That is correct. Uh, and we're working on the software to be able to better autonomously identify track and catalog objects as well. So um, amongst the capabilities we're developing, and this is particularly for closer range observations as well, are things like uh, pose estimation and rendezvous proxops algorithms and things of that nature, because those can evolve to help us better understand uh, the nature of the objects we'll be tracking in orbit. And so if you track one of those objects and you try to identify its its orbit, I guess if I remember correctly from our last conversation, not our conversation, but a conversation I had with Kehan, there is sort of an uncertainty around it, right? So you don't actually identify an orbit, but some sort of, a, I think the Kehan guys called it a probability cloud. I guess it's a confidence interval. I guess rather than an orbit, you would get something like a like a donut shape uh, sort of distribution of where the object could be? Is, is that what's happening? Yeah, so currently there's an estimation of objects in space based on current knowledge of where it is. And you kind of estimate where it's going to go based on your previous measurements and current measurements of, of where that particular dot is. When you have like our orbital platforms observing in a continuous manner, manner assuming we have a fleet of our overset uh, spacecraft distributed such that we can cover a complete orbital regime in low Earth orbit, then what you can have is near real-time consistent tracking of an object. So once, let's say, a particular satellite leaves the frame of our current spacecraft looking at it, we pass that along to the next spacecraft in our network to then pick it up and track it along the way. So that at no point in that particular, referring to a specific spacecraft at this point, but at no point is that particular spacecraft not being observed in its orbit around, around the Earth. And so what that creates is a vast reduction in uncertainty. Because if you can continually track that dot or that spacecraft, um, then it's not based on estimations. It's based on this is where it is, and this is you know where it is now, and this is where it is now. Um, so it's really unleashing a new paradigm of uh, measurements and ability to track things. So this sounds like if you want to do this throughout space, well, let me take a step back. I guess that's that's a key question. Do you want to do that basically really all around Earth and all orbits? Are you kind of focusing on some of the, uh, let's call it key trafficked uh, orbits like sun, sun synchronous for Earth observations and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it'll take time to build up to the uh, fully full coverage of low Earth orbit, like I mentioned. Um, we will initially uh, go after the uh, more populated orbits 
as a means of kind of triaging the place that needs uh, the most observation. But we intend to expand out from there. And so, so where would you start? Would you start with something like Sun Synchronous? Probably. I think we're still working to um, optimize traffic and customer base and uh, all those numbers. Um, we're working towards our first oversat deployment as a demonstration in uh, early 2023 or sometime in 2023. Uh, and then from there, um, build that MVP of uh, SDA spacecraft um, over the, the couple years after that. So, um, you know, still working to optimize uh, the initial deployments and uh, places we'll be observing. And what would that initial demo look like? Is that more to sort of basically test the instruments you're using? Correct. Um, it'll test the spacecraft capabilities will um, test a lot of our software capabilities. Um, we're talking to potential customers and would be interested to talk to more customers about um, anyone who might want direct observation of any of their spacecraft utilizing our oversat. Um, it, you know, we can prioritize advantageous deployments to uh, optimize ability to um, observe things. Um, and we really want to, you know, shake down all of the capabilities and potential capabilities of the spacecraft and show off the performance and really um, make that leap forward in uh, flight heritage and capabilities. Okay. And to the extent you can tell us about, let's talk a little bit about the, the sort of sensor technologies involved. And I guess both from space and from Earth, there's sort of like all the usual suspects like optical, radar, LIDAR, and so forth. Can you just give us an overview and then sort of like what you guys might be focusing on? Absolutely. Yeah, there are are many different sensor types. Uh, for space traffic management, it is primarily ground-based radars and optical telescopes. Um, you know, Space Fence is operated by the government, and you've got commercial operators like Leo Labs, uh, who use radar, and ExoAnalytic, who use optical telescopes uh, to look at low-Earth orbit and deeper orbits for monitoring space traffic and for space domain awareness. Um, in space for spacecraft themselves for figuring out where they are or where they are relative to something else. They utilize GPS, star trackers, LIDARs, radars, um, and sensors like that to really get self-awareness of where that spacecraft is. So what Scout is doing is leveraging optical sensors, essentially cameras, to do passive observation, meaning we're not using LIDARs or radars, we're just taking in data instead of pinging a signal off of something else. And uh, our initial product, which is called Scout Vision, is a stereoscopic, means there's two cameras uh, payload that is capable of allowing a spacecraft to have what we call local situational awareness. So to be able to um, have onboard sensing capabilities that allow the spacecraft to see around it and to be able to navigate relative to another object. Um, and so this can enable things like proximity operations uh, and docking maneuvers for satellite servicers, or it can enable things like collision avoidance and traffic monitoring um, utilizing the same capabilities. And so... We launched the first of our Scout Vision systems to orbit in June of last year on the OrbitFab Tenzing spacecraft. Uh, and so we've been flying that for a few months now and getting some valuable data and insights. And we are currently working with our first commercial customer to deploy two more Scout Visions uh, this year in 2022. Excellent. 
And just a follow-up question. So why did you guys decide to go with optical and decided, um, I guess at least for the moment, against some of the active technologies like radar or LIDAR? I mean, I guess it's power-hungry, but any other any other reasons? Power-hungry is one. Cost-hungry is another one. Um, but also, uh, I have a regulatory background. I used to work at the FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation, licensing launch and re-entry and doing ground safety and a whole bunch of regulatory activities for that office. And so I've got a little bit of a regulatory background and understanding standing. Um, active sensors are harder to get licensed than passive ones. Um, the government kind of frowns upon you shining lasers at other spacecraft. So LIDAR systems can be a touchy thing. And when you go outside of the visible spectrum, um, that can also add regulatory burden. So we're leveraging one, our knowledge and capability base by pursuing um, the passive optical, but also uh, getting through things regulatorily um, somewhat simpler than um, other potential systems. But we're making our software that powers uh, these vision systems. So we have a proprietary computer vision, machine learning, and uh, guidance, navigation, and control software stack that can actually take in and ingest multiple data sources and multiple sensor inputs. So if the spacecraft our scout vision is hosted on has LIDARs, additional star trackers, even though Scout Vision can act as a star tracker, or uh, GPS, we can ingest those um, pieces of data into our own system to make uh, even more accurate and robust um, calculations, estimations, and uh, operations. You brought up an interesting point of the, the regulatory angle of some of the active technologies. And I guess sort of related to that, um, it occurs to me, you guys observing sort of like the whole sky, so to say, uh, I mean, there's some people who don't want to be observed, right? Like mil military satellites from strategic competitor nations and so forth. Is that a concern in some way? Or is there some way in which uh, those types of satellites just are able to camouflage and disguise themselves anyway? Um, I don't know uh, about the camouflaging and disguising and uh, stealth technology. We'll have to get to your sci-fi question at the end before we talk about that. But um, <laughs> Observing things in space is a sensitive topic. There are a lot of um, entities that prefer not to be observed or at least have that data um, commercially available. So we have to work with um, partners and friends uh, you know, within governments um, and the like to make sure those relationships are well understood and that we um, are making as many friends as possible and not making any unnecessary enemies. So um, we're building our relationship uh, very quickly with the U.S. government and the Defense Department. Um, we were awarded our first Phase One SBIR uh, through AFWorks uh, a couple months ago, and we've had uh, many great conversations um, with defense and uh, intelligence community officials um, to have them better understand our capabilities and the products we're looking to offer. So even if the U.S. government or other governments aren't a direct customer, even though we think they will be substantial customers of our products, having friends um, and allies within those sectors and offices um, is definitely vital for the kind of operations we want to perform. Yeah, understood. And it sounds like, you know, once you have the satellites up there and once you have a lot of satellites up there, you're going to generate a lot of data, image data. Is that, are you going to be able to get all of that 
data back? Are you going to get all of that data back to Earth? Are you going to process some of it on orbit? Do you have any plans around that? Yeah, um, we have a lot of processing capabilities on board the spacecrafts themselves. Um, the computer we're using for our uh, Scout Vision system is very graphically capable. Um, and so with that, even in its current configuration, we're able to um, extract important metadata uh, from the entire set of data, but we're also able to push valuable information to the top. So if we detect stuff uh, that is of concern or things that we are specifically looking for, we can, the computer itself can um, highlight those things, push them to the top, and we can prioritize downlink of that specific uh, data. But um, when we get to the larger constellation, as you mentioned, um, we're going to be working on creative ways to best effectively get priority data down and to make sure the uh, important information that needs to get places gets there. Um, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers your question or not. Yeah, I think it does. I, I'm, I'm somehow envisioning you guys are flying the equivalent of like gaming laptops with, you know, like NVIDIA ships up there. Um, we, have, we have pretty capable computer we're flying. Um, so it's exciting to see uh, the computation we're able to do on orbit. Um, just speaking of about the computation uh, for, for a moment, um, I, I have a machine learning background myself. I mean, how are you actually able to train these these algorithms? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think right now nobody has this type of sensor on orbit, right? Like there isn't any debris, um, at least not any commercial debris tracking like sensors on orbit, right? There are very few sensors of the kinds we're utilizing in orbit now, um, and especially very few uh, looking sideways and up instead of down. Um, and so what we've developed in-house is a way to build massive uh, synthetic data sets that are extremely realistic. And we've been able to um, do a lot of our initial training for um, specific mission needs utilizing these uh, synthetic data sets that we've developed. But as we grow our assets on orbit and our heritage, um, we're going to leverage real data we ingest as well to supplement the synthetic data we've developed. Yeah, very interesting. I guess I guess it's obviously doable, right? Because I mean, if I take a comparison from another sort of um, domain, I mean, um, now Tesla has a ton of like um, driving data because there's a ton of cars with like uh, sensors out there but at the beginning they didn't right and they somehow were able to train their uh, train their algorithms anyway <laughs> exactly there's a lot of parallels to the autonomous driving sector okay um and, and by the way actually let's let's go back to orbits for a second because i didn't ask you what kind of i think you were saying you were flying above and looking um below so what kind of altitude are you guys thinking roughly it'll be again we're still optimizing for altitude so i, I don't know if i have a specific number for you today but you know, we intend to fly above where the um, bulk of the traffic is, uh, but not incredibly far away, such that we need massive sensors and scopes to see it. If that, okay. if that helps. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so, so something like "quote unquote" high low Earth orbit, like whatever thousand. Yeah, so mid to high low Earth orbit is what I'd say. Okay, understood. And then, what kind of satellites are those? Gonna, are those going to be sort of like three, six U cube sats, or what? What should we imagine? Yeah, so nominally. 
our oversets are six U cube sets um, for the first generations. And we may add um, multi-spectral sensors to that. So that may grow in the future, but we're designing them to be um, about six U currently. We have future plans for um, more capable satellites that fall slightly outside of uh, the general space traffic management observation category that will be in the neighborhood of like 150 kilograms and about the size of a dishwasher, but that's pretty far down the road. So, so I have to ask the question, um, the predictable question here is like, so we're proposing to build a constellation to deal with the problem that people are putting too many constellations up there. <laughs> so is there not a way you guys could have hosted that on another constellation? So the short answer is kind of. <laughs> right. We don't want to um, contribute to the debris problem. We don't want to contribute to overcrowding any more so than is absolutely necessary. We intend to decommission and deorbit our spacecraft as soon as they're mission is complete um, and, you know, replenish our um, assets uh, as needed. Um, our initial product is a payload. It can be hosted on a myriad of spacecraft. The nominal configuration only takes up two U in volume and um, is not super power hungry. So we would love to have these scout vision systems on as many assets out there as possible. If we're able to, I mean, this is like, you know, an ideal world probably wouldn't happen, but if we have a scout vision on every spacecraft in LEO, then every spacecraft has essentially a dash cam on board that can be contributing to um, the observations. And we wouldn't need as many independent scout spacecraft um, as yeah. as we're designing for. But um, that is in an ideal world. And you know there are swap considerations, there are cost considerations, uh, and there's a lot of things that go into designing missions, um, not even counting the logistics of, you know, operating uh, a payload on someone else's spacecraft and managing data and downlink. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it advantageous to have our own spacecraft that we operate uh, to be able to provide the highest quality data to our customers. Mm -hmm. and, and one follow-up question. Um, so I guess you, your spacecraft are going to have propulsion onboard propulsion right correct okay so you're really not contributing to the uh not leaving stuff up there plus correct. you'll be able to like maneuver out of the way if you yourselves are in peril of getting hit by absolutely yeah no every every um scout spacecraft that we're developing has uh some form of propulsion on board okay cool um let's change tag a little bit away from the the tech side and more towards the sort of like strategy and then sort of um commercial considerations so a few weeks ago we did have the guys from kahan on and i I guess I know the answer to that, but sort of for the benefit of our listeners, where do you guys sit versus a Kahan? Absolutely. So Kahan, great guys. We, we're pretty close with them. Um, are developing analytics tools that ingest data. Um, we are actually looking to be the producers of that data. So while we'll do some analytics on our own, we intend to uh, primarily um, pass off uh, somewhat raw data to um, other vendors who can utilize them for um, the stuff that they specialize in. Um, what we found is there's a lot of people looking to utilize SDA data um, to make products and specifically utilize on-orbit SDA data, but there's few people actually intending to collect that data. And so by being the first to orbit of, you know, the companies looking to be those on-orbit SDA providers, you know, we're really taking a step forward in proving that capability and proving uh, 
um, our roadmap. Um, and so I think, you know, we're going to be very well positioned to uh, supply that market with um, the data they need. And that market then would include people like Kehan, um, Okapi, which is like a Kehan in Europe, I guess. And But you're saying also other types of customers. What, what types of customers? Uh, data has many uses in many different forms. So I'm not going to claim to know uh, every use case for the data we'll be collecting. But, um, you know, there's obviously the governmental thing, both the civil and um, defense wise, you know, once space traffic management has a regulatory framework, they're going to need ways to enforce that. So, um, you know, we envision being a provider to that. Um, if you look at the insurance market, uh, knowing who's doing what and, you know, validating claims and whatnot could be an aspect of things we do. Uh, and also understanding the financial aspect of space operations in general. Um, there's a few different avenues of utilizing the data that way. So uh, there are primary data products and usages, and then there are um, supplementary and secondary things that can fall out of uh, of the kind of information we'll be collecting. Yeah, okay, let, let me ask in a different way. No, I appreciate that. But of course, you guys, of course, are developing a commercial strategy, a go-to-market strategy, and thinking like, okay, here are the doors we're going to knock on first, and here are the doors we're going to knock on second, and so forth. Um, I guess if I ask the question in that way, where do you guys are going to... Have, where are you going to expect to make your first revenues, to say? Gotcha. Who's our first customer? Um, so our initial customer base is actually the satellite servicing group. Um, you know, our first uh, demonstration payload launched on OrbitFab, who is a uh, on-orbit refueling company, and <laughs> they um, are utilizing our payload for uh, proximity operations that are going to be vital for um, their refueling. Um, we announced last month that our uh, first customer that we're working with uh, is Momentus, who is you know developing space tugs and whatnot, and they're leveraging our sensing capabilities for their operations. So them plus uh, several other conversations we have going on with the satellite servicing sector is really where we're leveraging building out the capabilities uh, for our software and um, scout vision system itself. Um, taking that a step forward, then we move into the general operator um, segment. So um, with the oversats, prior to reaching our being able to saturate an orbit and provide SDA, uh, we can also do direct observations. So if you've got a high-value asset or a very complex asset, uh, one thing we can do is deployment and uh, commissioning stage observations. So de-risking mm -hmm. um, uh, solar panel deployments, antenna deployments, uh, booting up of systems, or we can act as a security camera or neighborhood watch for high value assets. So we build up our capabilities um, one stage as a at a time as we uh, also build up our customer base. And so you can see from that perspective, um, we're leveraging the same exact technologies to expand the customer bases we're able to reach um, and build up that revenue stream as we grow towards the uh, overarching SDA that we're working towards. Okay, I, I understand now. It's it's funny, I sort of was very so much zeroing in on, on the Jabri use case, but now listening to that, it seems you're basically more like a, let's call it a vision system or vision analysis company, and Jabri happens to be one of the the use cases. Yeah, that that is uh, a way to describe it. Um, we're we're really like an on-orbit data company. So we collect that utilizing vision systems 
and process it using our software. Um, the things we can do with those capabilities can vary. And we're building our business logically on those specific capabilities. And so uh, we're kind of putting together the building blocks and the foundation for the really exciting world of having transparency in spacecraft operations and having safe operations be you know, universal even as they become more co complex. And the way we can provide to that is leveraging these uh, technologies and capabilities. Understood. So changing tack again, if we think about the, well, going back to debris, I guess, uh, to some extent, if we think about sort of the, the SDA, the SSA sector and how that will evolve in the medium term, also, also with regard to, to space debris and how we're dealing with that is something we touched upon, I guess, at the very beginning of conversation already when you said, you know, we we may be too reactive. Do you have a view of how the, all of that may evolve in the in the medium term? It's tough to say. Um, I, I don't know how quickly the civil and regulatory side will get a grasp on things. Um, we've seen a lot of stagnation in determining who's going to manage space traffic management and all that stuff. And that's just from the US side. Internationally, uh, it probably gets even more murky. Um, but what you have seen is a really increased focus by the defense side and by the commercial side to really have better space environment management. And I mean, I think in space news every day, there's a new article about uh, Space Force generals saying that, you know, we need a solution for debris and we need better knowledge and capabilities to detect and remove debris from orbit. Um, and that push and that voice is getting louder. And I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, I hope we're moving in the right direction quick enough, but I think uh, I think time will tell. And you know, if Scout can play a significant role in that, or you know, contribute to that in a way that benefits um, everyone at least a little, you know, we're we're happy to. Uh, play a part. Speaking of the, the playing a part, so there are, I guess, at least other couple of companies I can think of who are you know, proposing to do in orbit um, sensing as well, like uh, Privateer or Vioma or um, North Star. Any sort of notable differences in approach or philosophy from, from what you can see? I think there's different approaches and um, system architectures that each of the companies are taking. And I think that none of us are really planning to produce the exact same data. I think the market opportunity is big enough and I think space is big enough that we're not looking at anything saturated by any means at this point. Um, I think the competition is good. And I think, um, you know, we might be able to leverage each other's capabilities to make more robust products in the end. Um, we're looking at it from a perspective of trying to make spaceflight safer. Uh, there's going to be market competition. There's going to be a churn in who's providing these services. Um, but right now we think both Scout and the market itself is in a good place, um, and the number of players in that market is not necessarily uh, concerning at this point. Yeah, well, I, I would intuitively agree to that, right? I mean, we all believe and hope, I guess, to some extent that the activity in space is going to increase a lot. And at the end of the day, what you guys are all doing is, is sensing and providing intelligence about that activity in space. So it seems like it's a, a hugely, hopefully, hugely expanding pie and, um, yeah. Good. Um, so where are you guys right now? You mentioned this, you have, obviously you have uh, a sensor on um, a system on, on Tensing. There's going to be another a demo mission in early 2023. Um, how are you doing otherwise? Anything you guys need? You guys need more employees, uh, financing? Where, where does the company stand? Yeah, uh, we are growing. Um, 
we raised a couple small rounds in 21. Um, we're looking to to do a seed raise, uh, a larger seed raise sometime this year, probably early this year. Uh, so excited mm -hmm. to talk to anyone about that who might be interested. Mm -hmm. um, and we're working to hire. So, um, you know, we're looking to hire uh, flight software uh, people, computer vision engineers, um, business development people, uh, space industry specific. Um, we've got a, uh, a whole hiring page on our website. I don't want to kind of go through all of it, but... Um, mm -hmm. We'll put it in the, in the notes. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, but we're really looking to grow and, you know, we're going to be having our first interns this summer. So it's really exciting. Um, again, we've got, uh, we're looking at two Scout Vision launches this year uh, with our customer. Um, there might be more TBD, um, but you know, we're at the precipice of some really um, fast growth and really exciting milestones in our development. And yeah, we're working towards our first Oversat launch sometime in 2023. And that's just going to unleash a whole wave of um, new capabilities and offerings and uh, new um, customers. Okay. And for those people who may consider um, applying for jobs, you guys are based in the DC area, right? Yes, we are uh, based in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, currently. Um, we do have some other people in different locations, so we can uh, talk about that if there is interest, but uh, primarily based in, in uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. You go to how's, the, um, how's the sort of, um, let's call it the, the new space, the startup uh, space ecosystem there? I mean, I, I guess we all know like NASA is based in DC, in the D.C. area and uh, as are other relevant parts of the government, as are some you know, traditional uh, aerospace companies like Northrop. Um, what's, what's the new space startup scene like? It's growing. Um, I would, you know, if this were five years ago, I'd say it's not great, um, but there's a lot of startup activity. Uh, if it's not their headquarters, um, many companies have have offices in this area. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of regulatory stuff, but there's also a lot of engineering um, capabilities in this area. If you go slightly west of we are, uh, where we are, um, there's you know massive facilities for Northrop and uh, Boeing, like you mentioned, and others. And so that um, makes for a lot of access to talent and supply chain and things like that. Um, and you know the Northern Virginia region, specifically Fairfax County, where we're located, is really pushing to expand the uh, space and aerospace industry in this area. And they're very active in, um, you know, trying to help us out. And I'm sure helping other companies as well as we uh, grow and develop. So it's a very welcoming ecosystem. And I think it's, uh, it, it'll be a new space hub in, uh, in the next few years. Great. It's, it's also a great, great place to visit and live. I must, I must say. Cool. Let me um, come to my traditional last couple of questions. Um, the first one is if, if you weren't doing scout, um, is there anything else you'd be fascinated to do in, in space as an entrepreneur? Um, yes. Uh, so, I mean, I started my, my space career working at Deep Space Industries. So, you know, I, I kind of have a very forward-leaning vision. Um, I, I'm a big fan of space stations and in-space destinations. I, you know, uh, would definitely be happy to work in that aspect of the industry. But my, what I'm waiting for on the, the corner uh, around the bend is uh, in-space, like space-to-space -space transportation. So, you know, not rockets, not reentry vehicles, just purely space-to-space uh, -space transportation. So uh, uh, whenever that market becomes available, I would happily dive into that because I think that's going to be an exciting, um, exciting avenue. I mean, for like, 
you know, uh, cargo and personnel transport from from place to place. Uh, all right, I, I can tell we're sort of like segueing uh, into the sci-fi question here already. <laughs> but I guess and what you mean by that the is, closer. Is the closer these things get to to be the same topic, the more excited I'll get. So like stuff that doesn't have to, it's not, that is not designed to get out of the gravity well of Earth or another planetary body for that sake, but it's really basically designed to operate in the vacuum of, um, and, and the sort of low gravity environment of space. Correct. A real spaceship. That's that's what I want to work on. <laughs> well, why, why don't we um, actually then talk about the last question, which is about sci-fi and the favorite sci-fi. Any any examples from sci-fi for that? All right. Well, as you know, it's probably obvious. Uh, I've been watching a lot of The Expanse lately, <laughs> uh, and I'm a huge fan of The Expanse. I think the um, the world or the universe that they've put together, where um, you know, there's the interplanetary uh, geopolitical stuff and um, how it all interconnects, I think, is fantastic. I think that the technology they utilize is like just believable enough. Um, and I think, you know, the characters are great. Uh, so, yeah, no, can't can't plug the expanse uh, enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a huge fan. It has several of the elements that you like. It has the sort of the interplanetary transport part, right? With uh, specialized chips, it has uh, given your DSI background. It obviously has a lot of like um, space resources and mining in it as well. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny now that I think about it. Um, um, talking about space debris, uh, that's actually something that I don't think is mentioned in any sort of like sci-fi work, right? Basically, somehow in like all science fiction works I can think of, that problem has been solved somehow. We never never hear about sort of like, well, now we have to you know wait for our launch window because there's this huge debris cloud around Earth or <laughs> something like that. I think I think Wally is the only movie that addresses it. Okay, <laughs> the animated one that's with the, the debris cloud over. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Eric, thank you so much for for being a guest today. Um, best of luck with Scout and uh, you know with the future of the company and um, and yeah and we, we hope that what you guys are doing is will contribute to to solving that that, that problem and uh, keeping space a safe operating environment. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and uh, have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.